Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I'm Jim, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm, uh, I too, I'm very glad to be here. And I too took a tour of the surrounding countryside yesterday with Bob T. And uh, it's been many, many years since I've been in this area. I've been flown over it several times, but you don't see it from there. And uh, I didn't even think of any of those descriptions he gave. <laughs> uh, it's just awe-inspiring, you know. It's it's just beautiful. I want to thank Bob for inviting me up and uh, all the people who served on the committees to put this thing together. Uh, Gene said he wasn't a very spiritual guy, and I, I, I'm going to have to argue with him a little bit because I don't think there's anybody in AA for any length of time that aren't rather spiritual. I think that's the name of the game, is the spiritual aspect of the program, and we used to call it the spiritual angle, but... Uh, uh, I just don't know if, if I could stay sober very long if I hadn't received some help from what I call my higher power. Uh, I'm going to go back a little ways and uh, tell you a little bit about what it used to be like, what happened, and what I'm trying to be like now. I uh, I was raised in a very ordinary home, I guess. Uh, my uh, my mother was a very religious woman. She lived a religion. <clears throat> And uh, my dad was very anti-religious. He lived less, and uh, uh, but we had a, we had a good home. You know, we didn't know we were poor. We'd find out until we got some money, and we, we realized how poor we'd been. But uh, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty good. Everything went along the way it was supposed to go along, as far as I as I know, anyway. And uh, my mother and dad did have some conflicts over there. <laughs> their general philosophy in life, I guess, and perhaps that had some effect on it. I don't know. Uh, but I didn't realize it at the time, and I never did get into this other program they have now that, I uh, uh, forget what they call it, but <laughs> anyway, it's supposed to be your parents' fault, and uh, <laughs> I can't go along with that, but that's my opinion. I may express some personal opinions here today, and if I did, you can just ignore them. I might even say we, and if I do, I, you can take it to mean me, uh, because every once in a while I get to say, you know, given some instructions, and uh, I'm reminded of, I was down in Hesperia where we had the, the last convention, and I was walking to the meeting, and Gloria H., who was running the, the, this particular meeting, said, Jim, she said, I don't have that deal about our anonymity, and, and I, I can't remember, to write me one, will you? And I said, I beg your pardon, you write that deal about the anonymity that we read for the press. And I looked at her like she's kind of crazy, and I said, well, I don't know if I can. She said, well, geez, you should have learned something in 33 years around this program. <laughs> so uh, so I did, but uh, that's how long I've been here, 33 years, and going on 34. I started going on right after my 33rd birthday. Uh <laughs> But anyway, uh, as I grew up, I uh, had a lot of fun when I was a kid. We we really had a good time. We, we lived in uh, Southern California on the eastern uh, outskirts of uh, L.A. Or, 
And it was still pretty primitive in that time. My brother and I, my brothers and I did a lot of fishing and hunting and all that kind of stuff. And life was pretty good uh, as far as I know. We were close enough to the ocean we could get on our bike and go down to the ocean. We only had one bike between us. My brother weighed about 40 pounds more than I did all the time, and I got to pump him all the way to Long Beach, which was 20 miles <laughs> 20 miles back. Felt good legs, uh, and I held a lot of resentment against him, <laughs> which incidentally didn't really disappear until just lately. But uh, I guess I had my first drink when I was about 12, and uh, my dad used to have a jug, and he kept it under the bed. And I, I noticed him tapping it one time, and I asked my mother, I said, what is that the dad's uh, drinking? She goes, a little tonic. When he gets cold, he takes a drink, and uh, he feels better. Well, I got a cold right after that, <clears throat> and uh, I got under the bed, and I got that jug out, and I drank it all. And uh, I, w- I used to say that it was a gallon jug, but I know it wasn't. It was this uh, old wine tonic, or Dago Red, we used to call it. And, uh, but I did drink all there was in the bottle. And, uh, you know, the results, uh, from that was both good and bad. Uh, the old man beat the hell out of me for drinking his booze. And, uh, I got sick and I got drunk and uh, then I got the beating. And so my first experience with booze was almost enough to discourage a normal person. But as Clancy explained last night in that double whammo that you had here, Clancy and, and Winnie, uh, Booze did something for me, and I didn't recognize it at the time, but I kind of liked it. There was something in the bottom of that jug that I liked, and I, I've never really investigated all of my motives for liking it or disliking it. Uh, I did make a stab at it one time later on, but uh, it doesn't make any difference. I did like it, then. but I didn't start from there and become a full-fledged alcoholic. I didn't do any more drinking until my latter years in high school. And I used to do a little drinking after I played football in high school, and we'd go down to one of the tough neighborhoods, and we were all football players. We thought we were tough, we'd go down to North Broadway, and we'd find out we weren't so tough, and we'd go back, you know. And, but we kept trying. We didn't give up easy. But uh, anyway, booze wasn't a big factor in my life at that time. And... Uh, uh, I was I was surprised when I found out I was an alcoholic. I really was. I, I didn't have any idea what an alcoholic was later on. I got married pretty young. I, I'd been given a scholarship to one of the universities in, in uh, L.A. there on my athletic ability. Then some nitwit looked it up my record, could see my grades. In the last year I was in high school, I didn't do much studying. I had other things to do. And... Uh, they noticed my grades, so they suggested that I go to a junior high school, a junior college, in order to bring my grades up so I could get in this other outfit so I could play ball for them. In those days, they didn't even pay you. You know, if you're an amateur athletic, you had to have the money to, to uh, be able to display your wares. And uh, I tried, I went to junior college for a little while, and, and I didn't like it. I, uh, I already knew all I needed to know, I thought. You know, my... Basic upbringing from my dad's side was you, you were supposed to uh, be willing to work, you were supposed to make money, you were supposed to amount to something, the money you made, you were supposed to save some of it in order to make more money, and uh, this was basically uh, his philosophy, you know, and he was kind of a hard old boy, he used to, uh, he used to break horses for, uh, for the uh, stagecoach uh, teams up at uh, the big park up there, Yellowstone. And that, that was his philosophy, and that's what you followed. But uh, 
anyway, I uh, had moved, we had moved, and we moved into next door to a, a family that had three girls, and there was one of them had big blue eyes and a lot of freckles on her face, you know, and, and I kind of liked her uh, right off, and uh, I was kind of observing her, and, and as we grew up and went to school together and so on, and along about, oh, you know, how they change in high school, <laughs> and I was watching those changes, uh, <laughs> quite regular, and uh, uh by golly, I thought, well, you know, I better marry this gal. She's, she's, uh, she's in full bloom, or somebody else does. And, uh, right after I decided I wasn't going to go to school anymore, why, we got married. And, uh, I was working about three jobs, trying to, trying to make things go, and it was in the, still in the depth of the, uh, depression. Fact is, I was still in the depression, uh, up until World War II started. <laughs> Some people had come out of it, but anyway. I was working real hard, and uh, my wife said to me one day, she said, you know, she said, you're going to have to go get some more education because I see that you're not going to be able to to support me in the manner that I'm about to become accustomed. And, uh, <laughs> so I did. I, uh, I'd get a job, and I'd take special courses to qualify me for that job, and then I got into an accounting deal on a, on a uh, part-time base, and, and that's sort of where my education was, was in accounting and uh, I got, I fell into a job that was geez, just a great deal. I was uh, working for a very large corporation out in Beverly Hills. And I worked there on Beverly Drive. And God, I, I got to see all the movie stars, you know. And uh, everybody thought, well, gee, that's great. I'd see them walking down there, going to the stores and all that. And they, people used to ask me about them. And I'd say, well, I don't know. Uh, they'd say, well, do you ever see so-and-so? And I'd say, yes. And, you know, I never, I was never one that, it meant anything to I was in a jewelry store one time and Gary Cooper was in there buying a ring and and uh, he asked me what I thought of it. I said, Well, hell with your money, what's what is what's different what I think of it, you know. But uh uh anyhow this is I'm just going along and I'm not paying too much attention to the rest of the world is is going by, but I have started to drink a little bit. I remember I went uh uh, with my, uh, the head auditor of the, uh, the uh, outfit one time to go up the coast. We used to do audits from, uh, Washington down to Mexico and, and we went up around Fresno and, uh, we went out to dinner and the guy bought me a couple drinks and I was only 21 years old at the time and, and, uh, boy that was, that was pretty nice. I, I figured, well if you're going to drink you ought to eat because it ruins the effect of the drink, you know. But, uh, during the evening I drank quite a bit. And somehow or another, I, this guy had brought his girlfriend along, and we were staying at a pretty plush hotel. And somewhere in the evening, I lost this guy and his girlfriend. And I was driving the car for him. And I didn't find him, and he didn't find me until the next morning. And he asked me, he said, what the hell happened to you? And I said, well, uh, I, I don't know. I was wondering the same thing about you. <laughs> and he suggested... If you're going to work for this company, you probably shouldn't drink anymore, at least when you're on duty. And, uh, you know, I'm beginning to receive these little hints along the way, but, of course, I was kind of slow. I I, I didn't catch on until pretty late. But anyway, World War II started, and I got into that deal and uh, didn't do too much drinking in there and got my service in and got back. And uh, I come back to this uh, new world. It was a different deal. Uh, everything was different. Uh, if you had something to sell, somebody would stop you and buy it from you. Uh, everybody had saved up some money during during the World War II, or the ones that I met did. 
and uh, uh, I uh, didn't know what I wanted to do. I really didn't know. I didn't want to get back in office work. I, after training for accounting, I hated being inside, and <laughs> I still do. But that's typical of, of my uh, operation. I always train for the wrong thing. But uh, my dad had a big real estate and insurance business, and he offered me a job, and I thought I'd give it a try, and I did, and by God, I hit my stride. That was it. That was great. I, I, I loved se- uh, selling. I was out and move around. And I made uh, good wages, uh, good commission. It was all commissions that I worked on. I didn't get any salary. Uh, but I made, the, I did well, and I saved some money, just like the old man plotted for me to do. Bought some properties and so on and so forth, and things were going good, and I'll tell you, all you had to ask me was how are things going, and I'd tell you about my bank account. <laughs> I was very modest, and uh, 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 yeah, and I was drinking in the better places too. You know, I was drinking in the in the very well upholstered uh, places around town, and uh, God, I thought I'd hit I'd hit my stride. And my wife was beginning to complain a little bit, like where were you last night at dinner time? She had a dinner hour, and we were supposed to observe that. And uh, meanwhile, we had a couple of kids, and uh, I wasn't getting home every night. And I explained to her that I was closing a big deal, and I, I sometimes was. I didn't have anything to do with real estate or insurance, but I was, you know. But uh, <laughs> and it's getting it's getting worse now. I've uh, run into an outfit that their slogan uh, was "We Care," it was known as the Highway Patrol, and. Uh, <laughs> They were they were caring for me on a regular basis almost. And, uh, uh, we'd bought a new home and it was a sort of a small town deal. And uh, the cops would see me weaving my way home or driving down the sidewalk, and uh, they would uh, take me home and uh, tell me, "Well, you, you know, you shouldn't do that in town because we can't continue to save you forever." And I thanked him very much if I was still able to stand up. And uh, and this went on and on uh, like this. And I, I began to get into a lot of trouble. First time I was uh, in jail, I was humiliated for, for being in jail. Absolutely humiliated. Because, you know, to throw a guy... I told him how important I was. <laughs> and I was down in San Diego. And uh, the policeman said, well, he said, we, uh, you're going to like it here. He said, we've got a lot of important guys locked up here. <laughs> And, uh, and then he slammed that door on me, you know, and it clicked. And that click left a, 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 a something in my mind, I'll tell you. I hated to hear that because when that click clicked, you were in, you know. And I don't mean you were, you were in for, for the night anyway. But anyway, uh, I had a, uh, uh, discussions with my wife uh, about this drinking, and I promised her, well, I would start drinking normal. And um, she uh, said, well, let's, uh, why don't you just have a couple drinks when we go out? And I promised her I would. And, and I did one time. And uh, <laughs> very uncomfortable, you know. If you're not, if you don't have a little edge on, if you don't have a start, you might not get there before the party's over. So I started bringing home people. And I uh, would bring home people from the bars. And uh, my wife was supposed to welcome them with <laughs> open arms. No, no wonder they have a weeping rock. I'll tell you, some of the characters I brought home, I wouldn't let them in my house now. But <laughs> oh God! And then we would have a little party on Saturday night, and some of them would stay over until Sunday, and then they got to where they were staying over until Monday, and eventually my wife threw it all out bodily, almost. And uh, 
I was uh, sitting in my living room one uh, one evening, and I was reading to my two children. I had uh, two kids on the one arm of my big chair, and, uh, and I had a uh, fifth of booze on the other arm, and I was reading to my children out of the Bible. I thought they should have a religious education. And uh, uh, the doorbell rang, and a guy asked for me by my full legal name, and I answered the door, and he handed me a piece of paper, and it was a divorce action my wife had brought against me and I, I was dumbfounded. I just somehow or another I was able to ignore reality and I suppose as, as Clancy exclaimed last night that was the reason that I that I was so enthralled with this booze business. Uh, he said on the complaint that we were to be separated and that there was a uh, deal about the property settlement. We had a little property now so I had something to worry about. And it says that uh, the house was mentioned specifically, and it said that she was to get the, uh, it was a 50-50 deal. She was to get the inside, and I was to get the outside right away. <laughs> and, uh, boy, I'll tell you, I'll tell you I, was, I was stunned. I, I, just, I just couldn't recover from this thing. I didn't want to leave my, uh, I didn't want to lose my wife, and I didn't want to lose my kids. And uh, uh, just, uh, just you know, I, I didn't know what to do about it. But uh, the judge uh, notified me of what to do about it. I moved out, <laughs> and uh, I living in a crummy little motel. Uh, it was right down the industrial district. And the reason I moved there was because I could walk to work because I didn't really have a driver's license. It wasn't that I wasn't driving, but you know, you can't hardly haul people out to look at a house on the back streets all the time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so I lived in this in this terrible little motel, and, and a, a friend of mine uh, uh, came over to my office one day, and an old friend of mine, a guy I drank with for many years, and he said uh, uh, he got in some way. I don't know how he got in, but I had wor- wor- word out up front that I was busy, that I was working on a project, and I didn't want to be vis- uh, bothered. And somehow he got by the girl's front desk, and... Uh, he walked into my office, and I had the lights out and my dark glasses on. And uh, he asked me, he asked me one of those horrible questions, you know, that people ask alcoholics. I, I, I don't suppose there's hardly an alcoholic that hadn't been asked some of these kind of questions. It's simple question, really. It's not something so profound, but his question was, "How are you?" Well, you know, I'm dying. That's how I am, and I'm sick, and I'm probably only going to make it, won't make it through the day. But I tell him how good I am, how prosperous I am, and how things are going so well. He says, well, Ronnie, said, let's go down and have a drink. We went down to the bar right down the street. And uh, uh, I had a double-double, naturally. And uh, he ordered, and I thought I heard him say coffee, but oh no, this guy wouldn't buy coffee. You know, he looked good. His eyes were clear, and his skin was fresh, and and he looked 10, 15 years younger than he did the last time I'd seen him when I was getting him out of jail. And uh, I was a little suspicious of him. I thought maybe he'd hit the sawdust trail, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I finally asked him, what happened to you? And he said, well, Jim, he said, I joined forces with a group of people who get together and don't drink. My God, my world fell apart. My last drinking buddy, <laughs> you know, had gone religious. And uh, so I had a double-double. And I watched him out of the corner of my eye to see if he wasn't getting something. They weren't sneaking something into his coffee. Finally, he asked me, he said, would you like to go to a meeting with me tonight? And my first impulse was to say, I sure don't want to go to a meeting with you. 
then I thought, you know, I didn't have a driver's license and he had wheels. And, uh, and I, nobody's going to ask me. People quit asking me to, to come over to their place. Many of them asked me not to come over to their place. But anyway, uh, I agreed. And he came to the motel that night, and I uh, was all dressed and ready to go, and I didn't know what I was dressed and ready to go for, because I'd entered into the blackout deal. And uh, he knocked the door, and I saw him. He said, uh, again, he said, are you ready? And I was ready, but I didn't know what for. We got in his car, and we drove to a meeting down in San Gabriel, right next to the dog pond. <laughs> he didn't used to think so much of AA as they do now, you know. We we had some pretty raunchy meeting places in those days, but... <laughs> But anyway, this is back in 1951, and uh, we went to a meeting, and it was one of the great speakers there. God, he was uh, he was quite a guy. Well, Chuck C., most everybody in the world knows him, I guess. And, uh, God, the, uh, you know, the place was full. They were out on the porch. I didn't know they were having coffee break. Took me right down the front two seats. Hot in that place. God, I'll tell you, I was nervous, nervous and shaky. And uh, I couldn't get a drink. I'd had a couple before I left to go down there, but not enough to really carry me through. And uh, they got up, and a lot of people got up and talked, and people laughed. And the guy told about being thrown through his windshield out on the street. And somebody rescued him, took him into their house, and gave him a drink. And everybody laughed and clapped. And, Jeez, I've got into an insane asylum, you know. Uh, I mean... And first place, and I felt I felt ashamed for the guy for telling these things on himself. I thought, my God, you know, I could see me doing that. See, and and what I would do is I'd get up and say, well, I was in jail last night, and then one of my uh, Rotary fellow Rotary members would take a note that Jim A was in jail last night, and then at Rotary meeting Monday they'd get up and tell about Jim A being in uh, jail last night. You know, and I figured that's the way the world works, but I'd never run into a bunch like you people. Uh, I eventually went back out and drank again because, uh, you see, I was there, and this guy had asked me to go to meetings with him, and he said it might help him. He was only three months sober at the time, or, uh, yeah, three months sober. And uh, uh, when I'd been there for a while, I, I thought I had knowledge about alcoholism and that I wouldn't have to drink anymore because I knew now what it, you know, what the effects of it was. And uh, that lasted for oh, a short while. I started to drink again, and I took the geographical cure and went to Northern California because I wanted to get away from people, places, and things. Got up there and started, and it was worse up there than it was down here because I'd, I'd left my umbrella. You know, I, I didn't have the shield that I had because people used to take care of me. I had a lot of people working for me at one time, and they'd get me out of jail so they could be sure and get their paycheck. Even if it bounced a couple of times by they, you know, they wanted to know they had one coming. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it got bad up there. I, I, I teamed up with a bunch of people, uh, uh, that were coon hunters. I, I don't remember how I got into that mess, but I did. And, and, uh, oh, I know it was the constable's son that invited me. And, uh, we went coon hunting a lot. And, uh, I, I love that sport. And I really did. Because uh, they drank a lot. You know, you can drink all night and walk all night, and uh, as long as you didn't sit out near a fire someplace and get warm, while well, you can keep on going, you know. And one time, uh, the coon hunters didn't pick me up. I'd, I'd got a bunch of dogs by then. And uh, I went down to see George, and he said, Jimmy, he said, I'm sorry, but the guys like you when you're not too drunk. God, how many times I'd heard that, you know. And he said, the fact is, they're spending more time hunting you than they are the coon. Well... <laughs> 
and I guess it was true. I'd fall in the stream and wash down the stream, and the dog would be trying to tree me, and uh, either I'd get out in a marsh, and the dogs would be, you know, snapping and snarling, and then they'd get in a fight, or they didn't know who in the hell they were hunting, I guess. <laughs> And uh, so they, uh, see, I'd been ostracized and asked to leave again. And uh, I went up to the hills, and I took my dogs, and uh, I said, the hell with them, I don't need them. I don't need any help from anybody. That was my favorite thing. I don't need any help from anybody, and I'm not hurting anybody but myself. Forgetting, of course, about my faithful little wife and uh, my little kids, you know, and uh, uh, the escape from reality again. Uh, I ended up my, my drinking career up on the mountain outside of Chico, California, uh, with, uh, I think I had uh, eight or ten coon dogs at the time, and I'd taken them up there with me, and I made a mistake, I forgot to take any dog food, and, uh, you know, dogs may be man's best friend, but if you don't feed them, they, they leave, and uh, they did, and I was up there all by myself. And I, I, mean, I remember some things about that, uh, not too much, and I don't remember how long I was there because my whole life was hazy by now. But I do remember one thing. I do remember one thing. I, I was desperate. I was going to blow my brains out. And I had a rifle, and I, and I made up my mind that I was going to do this because I had no hope of ever going back down again and, and uh, maintaining any type of a normal life. And uh, I'd set up against a pine tree, and I was going to put that rifle in my mouth and blow my brains out. And I got to thinking, you know, the target was awful small, and I vibrated a lot, and I might miss. And there was still time for another snow up there, and I just kind of visioned that snow piling up past my eyebrows, me unable to move, you know. And uh, so I, I did the only thing I knew how to do. I, I actually cried out in desperation. I said, God, why don't you help me? What the hell's the matter with you? Why don't you help me? You know, and I kept saying, "Help, help!" You know, and and uh, and that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my life. I uh, that life that I had back there seemed to fade into the past more gradually as I went along. Uh, I had a, a sort of thing, and I could see my life as I led it. And you know, I I had separated myself from any concept or any association with a higher power of God as I understood him. When I was 15 years old, my mother died. And I, you know, I I had, still had the ability to think a little, a little at that time, and I reasoned that she was the good one of the family. She was the one that was, was always there. She was the one I could consult with. Uh, she was the one that prayed a lot, and I loved to go to church. I liked to sing. And I liked those uh, uh, deals they used to have in church, you know, and everybody was so friendly. And I got a job when I was a little kid going out to deliver packages to the poor people. Didn't steal much of it to take home. And, uh, you know, uh, it, was, it was a real good life. I liked it. And when she died, it all ended. So I left. I left God where, where he was at the time. And I went on by myself. And my best efforts, my very best efforts, Ended me on the top of a mountain in the wilderness area, about to blow my brains out. Was the only prayer I had left was God help me. Uh, I had this thing that I looked back on it, and I further said, "If you get me off of this damn hill, I'll go back to that AA outfit." Now I didn't know anything about uh, AA up there. This is a small town. Hell, they didn't have any. I did get back down the hill and got my dogs there. I want to put your mind at ease because some people said, did you leave the dogs up there? 
But I didn't. That was that's important. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I went back downtown, down to this little town in the valley, Sacramento Valley, and uh, I was going to go to AA, and I couldn't find it. I damn near missed the book. I just come within a hair of missing the whole deal. There was no ad in the paper. There was no listing in the phone book. There was no way I could find AA. Somebody had suggested one time, if you ever get to where you want to go to AA and uh, you just uh, go to the police department, they'll tell you where it is. <laughs> well, I wasn't that stupid. I mean, I'd already been to the police department. And I knew how they treated people like me. But uh, there was a little ad in the paper. My wife had been cutting this thing out for I don't know how long. And about every third, fourth day, she'd give me this little ad that says, if you're having trouble with your drinking and want to do something about it, write to post office box 205. <laughs> well, I got home, she let me in the house for some reason. And uh, she gave me another one of these little ads. Of course, I couldn't see it. <clears throat> and uh, finally, I kind of began to draw up. And I didn't quit drinking. This is in 1955. I didn't quit drinking at the time. I slowed down. I just, uh, I don't recommend this for anybody, but I knew that if I quit, I'd go into convulsions probably die because I'd been drinking a long time by now. But one day I sort of sobered up enough and I thought, well, I'm going to try to get in touch with that outfit. That sounds like it might have something to do with AA. So I got the, the typewriter out and hell, it was all one key. I couldn't run that and I couldn't write. My 12-year-old boy walks through the kitchen and he says, what are you doing? Dad, I'm trying to write a letter. And he says, who to? And I says, I think it may be that AA outfit. Boy, he says, can I help you? <laughs> and and he did. He helped me write that letter. I've got it, still got it, and I take it out every once in a while, and I read that, see, because it's necessary for me to tell you a little bit about my past. It's necessary for me to rem remember my past so I can remember why I'm here and how fortunate I am to be here. And I've gone to AA meetings where they didn't do that. They started right in, and they uh, said, all right, good, for old-timers and philosophy and all this kind of, that's great. But I got to know when a guy's talking up in an AA meeting that he's, he's drunk, uh, somewhat like me. Because if I don't, uh, I might not listen to him like I should. See, because it's important. And it's, uh, I recommend it uh, uh, to tell a little bit about what you used to be like. My uh, eight-year-old daughter mailed that letter. My wife had given me the clipping. And uh, you see, I my hero story... My hero story ended in total defeat. I couldn't even write a letter. I couldn't even mail a damn thing. You know, and I certainly couldn't have saw it in the newspaper to cut it out. So I said, well, that's it. I'll just wait and see what happens. And I waited and I waited and I waited. Five days went by and nothing happened. And I said, well, I wonder what the hell kind of an outfit this is. And I looked again to see if I was supposed to send some money. <laughs> and, and evidently I didn't. And I got it out Doorbell rang one night, and uh, two guys were standing there, you know. And, and in the meanwhile, my wife had got a bad case of the flu, and she was laying on the, the van in the living room. And these two guys uh, said, "We're from AA. Is uh, Jim Anders here?" And uh, I said, "Yeah, I'm here." And then they talked to me, and they told me their stories. And one guy was a young guy who was uh, about a couple of years younger than I was. I was 33 at the time, 34, 33. I never had to make up my mind. Anyway. And he was an athlete, and uh, an ex-professional athlete, and he was in charge of the athletic program around town, and I'd read about him, and, and he was a clean-cut-looking all-American boy, and I thought, geez, this guy's just about like me, you know. 
So he told me a story, and it was very mild, very mild. I didn't drink too much beer, blacked out after a game, run into somebody's car. A couple of A's happened to be over visiting in San Francisco. They come to see him uh, after the game, and they talked to him about AA, and by God, he had seen the writing, handwriting on the wall, and he'd gone to AA and been sober for three years. And my heart sank, because, you know, I knew that nobody that was an alcoholic like me could stay sober for three years. And then the other guy, he started to talk. God, he was an old reprobate. <laughs> he had broken veins and a big red nose. And I thought, well, maybe Tony picked him up, uh, you know, as he went through town out of a skid row or something. His name was Fred, and he began to talk, and God, he just went on and on and on and on. And I interrupted him once, and he told me about all the fortunes he'd won and lost, and somebody dropped his name, I don't know who it was, and I recognized that he had been a big name in the lumber business up there for many years. And... Um, I interrupted him to tell him what a big shot I was. How much money I'd made. I, of course, neglected to tell him I didn't have any of it left. But, uh, anyway, he, he said, well, that's all right, Jim. He said, you can come to meetings anyway. And then he went right back into his story, you know. <laughs> and, uh, oh, God, I don't know. And finally, Fred, Fred had the magic words. You see, if you want to uh, get this program, that's what you got to do. You got to want some help. That's the secret got to want some help. And then, of course, you have to do the things you have to do when you get here. You've got to want some help, I believe. And it doesn't make any difference what your motive is for wanting your help. Help, as far as I'm concerned, when you originally get here. It doesn't make any difference you come here to keep from going to jail or get your wife back or get a job or even hustle a little dough. I've been hustled by, the, by some experts at AA who later on sobered up. One of them even paid me back. And... Uh, <laughs> Guy walked up to me in a meeting one night and he says, here's a 565 or something. I said, what's that for? He said, well, you give me a book about seven or eight years ago. He said, I just started reading it about three years ago and I've been sober for, for just three years. That's one of the rewards, you know. Well, anyway, uh, I, um, Fred said, uh, you know, he did ask me some, some questions. He said, how long has it been since you heard my radio up there? And I had an old radio that had been Nice kicked around and swept up and put up on the shelf, you know, and pieces. Didn't have any visible means of support at all. And when he said that, I began to get suspicious of this guy, Fred. He's like me. You know. he, he knows that those radios play, whether they got a uh, power source or not, you know. And I used to hear some music. And some of it was uh, just like a, an orchestra forever tuning up, I used to hear. It would drive me crazy. I had to drink on the counter, you know. <laughs> that was one of the reasons I drank. And uh, he said, how long has it been since you had the convulsions of the DP? And I assured him I never had. And I was a high-bottom drunk. He said, in case you get them again, he says, we'll, we'll give you a drink. we got a bottle out here. And I, I got that in case you get him again, you know. And uh, he said, do you like bourbon? And I said, well, yes, I like bourbon. <laughs> he said, well, if you need one, it looks like you're going to go, gonna flip out. We'll, we'll give you a drink. That's what we used to do. We'd take a jug along and... And uh, we didn't have any doctors up there would would attend a, a drunk. You know, they'd already attended one or two, and they didn't want any more of them, I guess. <laughs> Couldn't get them in a hospital. We used to go down to L.A. Uh, County Hospital down there and put them on a gurney and sneak in the back door and shove them down the hall and disappear and hope they got in the right place. I never heard of any of them getting in the maternity ward accidentally, but, you know. So, uh... Anyway, uh, I said, yes, Fred, I like bourbon, and uh, and uh, I said, the fact is, I said, uh, I'm feeling pretty bad right now, <laughs> and 
He, no, he says, we'll make a decision, Jim, whether or if or when you, you get a drink. And that was something new to me. Nobody had ever made any decisions for me for many, many years. And uh, I didn't think I needed anybody to make decisions for me. But I did. I needed uh, somebody to make a lot of decisions for me. And they started right there. Fred said, I'll make your decisions for a while. And uh, he ended up his uh, long story by saying, I've been in this outfit for uh, 90 days, and I've been sober for 90 days. And when he said that, that was my answer, and that's what I looked for. I'd been to psychiatrists and psychologists and hospitals and sanitariums, but nobody ever said I've been sober for 90 days, you know. <laughs> Hell, I don't think Fred would have said it if he'd have known. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, he said, I've been sober for 90 days, and I love it. Said, I, I can go every place, and he said, Hell, I haven't even got a job yet, but, I, but I'm happy. And I could see Fred was happy. He had what I wanted. You know, I could see it in his eyes. And uh, so I would have followed Fred to any place he'd asked me to go. I'd have gone where Fred said. And uh, I did. Uh, they put a, a watch on me. Uh, they stayed with me two days, uh, uh, two nights and one, and a couple, about a day and a half. And they walked the floor with me because they knew I, I wasn't able to... Uh, to sleep. I was a 20-minute drunk. I'd pass out and I'd wake up and I'd have some more drinks and I'd pass out and I'd wait. I was in that syndrome. You know, I'd round and round and round the clock. And uh, after about the second day, I wore out and I guess they did too and I went to sleep and I got the first damn sleep I'd had in years. I mean sleep. I wasn't passed out. I was sleeping. And I woke up and I, I it was just like it was just amazing. I didn't know what the hell to do. I felt so good, you know. I didn't still didn't have any strength, and I looked like a like a sausage bag that's got too much sausage in it because I weighed about 60 pounds too much at the time. It was all red and all that, you know, but I felt great. I felt mentally I felt good. Not sharp, good. <laughs> and so they took me to a meeting. God, there was six people there when I got there, seven company, and everybody come up and shook hands with me, and... Uh, Begin to tell me their story, and I kept trying to interrupt and tell mine, and they didn't want to hear it. And, uh, God, this, this is great. They didn't, they didn't ask me for any money. You know, and I didn't even hear anything about an initiation fee or anything. And, and I loved this. I thought, God, you know, I'm the main guy here because everybody's coming up and patting me on the back and telling me what the hell good future I have, you know, I had, and I didn't even think I had any. If I had to bet on it, I wouldn't put much money down, I'll tell you. Anyway, uh, things were going along pretty good, and I hadn't been there too long. I was sobering up, and we got a couple new guys, and uh, and, and I was watching those uh, new guys come in, you know, and geez, it seemed like they just kind of snapped out of it, you know. There was one guy that was, uh, he looked terrible. I mean, he, he looked like if he'd have been in L.A., he'd have been on Skid Row, but they didn't have real, uh, uh, real Skid Row up in that area. They had a poor district where, uh, you know, a lot of the people went to retire and seek lower companions. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, after about, seemed like several weeks, he began to look good, you know. He had clean clothes on and, and he'd show up to the meetings. And there was only one meeting in town when I first got there and they finally opened another one. And, uh, and he asked me for a ride home one night and I took him home and uh, I, that sort of seemed to be my thing I was supposed to do. I'd take him home and we'd stop and, and we'd talk a little while and then he'd get out and go in his house and, uh, I, and I couldn't see his house. There were so many trees and weeds and stuff around it. 
And one night we sat out in that damn cold car and we talked for about two hours. And I said, why don't we go in? I'm freezing to death. It was cold up there, you know. And I'd start that old car and let the heater run for a while, warm it up. And then I'd turn it off. And he said, well, he said, I, 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 it's colder than there. It is here, Jim. He said, I don't have any gas or lights in there. And he said, all I have is water. And I said, I'll be damned. And here he didn't see. He didn't have anything. He didn't have any money. He didn't have anything. Practically starving to death. He was living on the donuts and, and cookies we had at the meeting. And some people began to bring sandwiches so he could, he could he'd have something to take home with him. And so a bunch of us got together and, uh, we bought him a, uh, a meal ticket for, uh, he could get one meal a day at this, uh, restaurant. And, and old Jim, he, he sobered up. God, he, he looked good, you know, and he, uh, he met a nice lady on the program. And he was a, uh, Chainsaw repair man and evidently a good one and they were married and, and uh, he got a business, got back in business, you know, and he remained a solid member of AA, willing to do whatever was necessary to help somebody else. And uh, I began to catch catch the idea, you see, if I'm helping somebody else, it's pretty damn hard to be feel sorry for myself. But this doesn't come overnight, you know, because I had a hell of a lot of things to make up. They used to call me not nervous, but quick. I uh, <laughs> I kind of darted around like a hummingbird. You know what I mean? I, I uh, a guy asked me to uh, go to work for him. A uh, guy that I had worked for when I first went up there, and he he told me if I'd uh, keep going to church and and uh, I could go to work for him. I'd tell him I wasn't going to church. <laughs> anyway, I went to work for him. God, I was uh, desperate for money, and I remember my first Christmas on the program. I wanted to uh, get the kids, uh, wife, something, you know, for Christmas. And uh, uh, I'd made a couple of sales. I was working for this guy, and, and his uh, dough was still in escrow. And I was sitting there in the office one day trying to connive away, and I was trying to get up enough nerve to ask him to advance me some dough on, on the strength of my sales. And he walked in. He said, Jimmy, he said, you know, I've got, I'd like to close some books before the first year. Would you mind if I came in, if I uh, uh, paid you in advance for the... <laughs> For these uh, uh, sales you have, and I thought oh, I'd be all right. And uh, <laughs> he said you have to drive down to Sacramento, a hundred miles, and uh, to pick up the check. And I said, well, I guess I can make it. So I, uh, well, you should have seen. <laughs> I'll tell you, I really made the trip to Sacramento, <laughs> and uh, God, we had a nice Christmas. So I got a little Christmas tree, and uh, it was raining up there. It's always raining up there, and uh, I had a little stream running right through my living room. Uh, roughly quite a bit. We didn't have any cups with handles on them. We didn't have any sheets for the bed. We'd run out of everything, you know. We'd spent no money had gone towards maintenance of the house or anything. And uh, in spite of the fact that I had made good money right at the time, I, I finally went under. But it was, uh, it was one, of, one of the better <coughs> Christmases that I remember. Uh, we, uh, he had a crazy first year. God, why was terrible? I thought I was going to go nuts. I really did. I, I was convinced that I was nuts because I, you know, I was, I was, I was just uh, confused. I guess I lived at Fred's house about half the time. Fred had to, had to leave and had to go someplace for uh, for work. And uh, God, that was a terrible blow. I said, Well, what'll I do? And he said, Well, he says, What you do, Jim? You get another sponsor and you stay sober, and I'll check in with you once in a while. And, Check in with your sponsor and, and give him some.
sober and I'll check in with you once in a while and check in with your sponsor and, and give him some instructions for you. <laughs> the, the hell, I'm beyond that, you know. Well, anyway, I did. I got another sponsor and this guy was a newspaper guy. He was a cynic. And uh, he used to talk to me about my ego and things. And, uh, I uh, what the hell are you talking about, fella? I, uh, you know, I, I tell him about my past. <laughs> yeah, uh, God. Uh, we went out on a 12-step call one time, and we went over this nice hotel there, best one in town, and this guy called, and he was going to commit suicide. And so we went out there and to see this drunk, and he took me with him, and and the guy was going to jump off off of the uh, jump out of the building. We got over there, and some that was on the first floor. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, he kept telling my sponsor about what a big shot he was and how he was registering who's who. And finally, this guy, this new sponsor of mine, says, "How were you registered and who's who, drunk or sober?" And uh, that told me something, you know. It make a damn bit of difference where you were it's today. It's where you are today. And, uh, and I, I learned a lot of things, not by, uh, uh, but by doing and being and being involved. I was always wanted to be involved because I was terribly afraid that if I got Fat and full again, I might get careless, and I knew that there was no more recovery in me. I knew it was over with as far as ever recovering from another drunk. Uh, I, uh, I had to finally leave that place, uh, because I had to go back down the southern part of the state. I had, uh, some assets down there that I was unable to get a hold of to blow while I was drinking, and I thought I better go down and develop them. But uh, it was that four years, five years that I spent in AA up there that gave me what, uh, you know, we didn't have speaker meetings up there. All we had is uh, uh, discussion meetings, book study meetings. And uh, I went to meetings uh, many times when there were four people in a meeting. And uh, it was kind of hard to talk with the same people, hear the same stories over and over again, you know, or... Uh, uh, and I always got up ahead of deal where you used to get up and every guy talked five minutes. And I, and my wife was allowed to go to those meetings with me. And I'd always ask her, well, how did I do? And she'd say, well, you, I guess you did all right. I couldn't hear you. I could hear the chains rattling in your pocket better than I could you. And, cause I was nervous. Jeez, I just couldn't hardly stand up in front of people. I got me a little deal for chains now. And, <laughs> <laughs> had it ever since. But, uh, uh, just getting up probably was the biggest thing is, is uh, you know, uh, I had to do in, in order to be able to talk a little on my feet so I could help some of the new guys that were coming in. And uh, I don't know if I ever helped any of them, but I sure as hell helped me. I had one other experience that was very beneficial to me. Uh, I was uh, went down to Folsom Penitentiary with some guys one time, and they asked me to go, and I thought I was just going for a ride, and, uh, and we got down there, and... Uh, and uh, they went through the preliminaries like we have here today, and they finally said, well, now here's Jim. And I looked around, and I was the only damn Jim there. And I was supposed to get up and talk to these 350 prisoners sitting out there. You know, those guys were hard-time prisoners. They weren't just uh, yeah, but, uh, there for 502. They might be in there for 502 years, but uh, I, I'm supposed to get up and say something. I got up in front of the uh, bunch, and I stood there, and I, I couldn't say anything. I couldn't even say my name. An old guy walks up and he put his arm around me and he said, Jim, he says, you're a little nervous. This guy's an old timer. He's never going to get out. He says, you're a little nervous. He says, just take your time. So we got plenty of it. And, 
Everybody laughed a little bit. I said something. I don't know what the hell it was. But anyway, I earned the uh, privilege of going down there about six times a year to that penitentiary and uh, taking some guys down. We didn't have a panel like you have now. It wasn't organized, but I'd go out and around the valley and collar a lot of guys who hadn't been going to too many meetings. I figured I'd take the show them where they were headed. They'd get to a meeting. And uh, we went down to the penitentiary, and uh, I learned a lot in there. I don't know if I ever helped any of those guys, but boy, they sure helped me. I become acquainted with this old boy that uh, kind of helped me through that first meeting, and he disappeared for a while, didn't show up at any meetings, and I finally asked him when I saw him, I said, where in the hell you been? Well, he said, I, he said I've, uh, I've been in jail. I said, well, I know you've been in jail, but I said, no, he said, I mean in jail, in jail. Well, what uh, what does that mean? Well, since I've been solitary. I said, well, what for? He said, well, I tried to kill a guy. And I said, what for? Well, he said, he stole my orange. And I looked at him. I said, oh, he, st- he stole your orange. Stole your orange. Well, I guess that's okay. You know, I mean, if the guy steals your orange, he needs, he needs killing, you know. <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, uh, you know, I realized what he was saying, that they lived in a situation terrible condition, locked up like animals, that, and here they were in AA meeting, and a lot of them were making it. You know, they were making it in AA, locked up for life, many of them. And, and uh, I was able, some of them uh, obtained, uh, they got out, and I was able to pick up some of those guys and take them and help them get jobs, and try to introduce them to the outside society. I took a guy out one time, pretty notorious criminal, took him into a restaurant. There's a fish grotto up in Sacramento, and, and they opened they had a menu. It was about that long and about that wide. And <clears throat> I said, order what you want. He saw me, and he looked at it, and he turned pale. And, What's the matter? And he said, well, Jimmy said, I haven't looked at the menu for 21 years. Said, I don't even know what to do with it. Would you order it for me? And I did. And uh, I took it down and later on helped him get a driver's license, you know. And uh, he, he remained there solid. Told a member of A that he died, uh, uh, not because of me, but just because I was there. See, and, uh, uh, so that's that's what you used to do. That's what that's what we do in A. We just try to help the guy get on his feet and get him going. I'm not one who says that A is is the place we live. It's the place we go to learn to live. You know, uh, I uh, some people. Uh, uh, have accused me of hiding in AA, but it's just that I'm in AA a lot. You know, I, I still work. You know, I'm, I'm working every uh, every opportunity. <laughs> I uh, and I came back down to the the, the Southland. Uh, I got involved with a with uh, developing some properties and so on and so forth. I had to get back in the swing of things, and I've been gone long enough to forget most of the bad things that uh, had been done to me <laughs> while I was here before. And I got involved with a, with a guy, you know, and uh, he presented me a great deal, and gee, I thought it was wonderful. And I forgot to do one thing. I forgot to consult with my AA friends, you know. People, uh, in AA, there's every profession and every business type and every uh, trade and uh, the whole smear. And you can find somebody that knows and has got good sobriety that can help you if you would like to discuss a particular problem with them, you know. And I forgot to do that. Hell, I thought I knew something. I was sober about five years, four and a half years, and I come back down to Southern California. And I got involved with this guy, and uh, it only cost me, uh, I held a lot of money in about ten years to pay him away out of it. He, he, 
he uh, he gave, gave me the business, and he was the brother of a guy that I'd done business with for years. But I didn't know in the meantime while I was gone, he was getting on on pills and booze, and uh, he needed a lot of money to run that operation. And, and he wasn't too particular whose money he used, and it might have to be available, so he did. And I had to pay that loan off uh, over a period of ten years, and it was hard to help me to get to get going again, you know. Uh, but it was okay, because if I had got a lot of money right away, I might have got drunk. I've always, I always had a little trouble with success. And uh, I don't have so much trouble anymore, because I don't have so much success. But <laughs> anyway, uh, my wife and I, oh, up in uh, Chico, the little town where I was, my wife was going to this open meeting with me. And uh, she's had me help uh, making it that first year. I'm kind of bouncing around today, but that's the way it has to be, I guess. And uh, uh, she was uh, she's given me a lot of instructions, and uh, it was kind of conflicting with some of the AA instructions I was getting. And uh, they uh, they started Al-Anon for her up there, and uh, and uh, God bless them, I'll tell you, this was uh, this was the second greatest thing that happened in my life was Al-Anon. There's a lot of kidding about Alan, I know that, and it's all good natured, most of it. But for me, it was the life to, uh, I say, AA saved my life, and, and, and Alan saved my life. Because she got into that program, and she, she learned to let me, let me go. And it was pretty rough at first, I wasn't used to being let go. <laughs> but after a while, we got back together, you know, and we, when we were working towards the same thing. And she began to blossom out, she was beautiful. Brilliant woman today. I, I, I very seldom ever go to a convention without her. Just that she injured her back and couldn't make it. Riding car for a while. But uh, we have lived one of the most wonderful lives that uh, I had, could never have expected this. I would never have prescribed it. I would never been able to even imagine it. We uh, have gone to most of the uh, the world conventions that we except one that we that have occurred since I've been in the. And uh, we went to uh, uh, Montreal, no, Toronto, Toronto, to a convention. And uh, one of the guys that's here today, he and his wife, he, he and his then wife were going to speak at that uh, Toronto convention. And, and uh, they couldn't do it because his wife was ill. So he asked me to go, me and my wife, to go in his place, and we did. And here's this little gal that I was married to that... She used to, when people would come over, she would ask him, do you want coffee, tea, or milk? And that was the extent of her conversation at that time, you know. I'd beat her down pretty much. And uh, she'd been in Alan then about uh, five years, and she got up in front of an audience of 2,500 people, and she told her story, and they rolled in the aisle, and uh, God, it was great. I'm sitting there looking at her, I'm thinking, my God. This is, is this the little gal I married? Well, it wasn't really. The body was the same, but the mind and the personality had developed, you know. And she's a great source of inspiration to me because she has a, a an even temper, an even disposition. And uh, I'm I'm the type of guy I get riled up, you know. I I like that. Uh, <laughs> explanation of classes last night on the freeway. Not so bad on the freeway anymore. I finally got me a car that I can outrun them, so the hell with them. But, uh, <laughs> but I get churned up over things, you know. Uh, and I'll rave around a little bit and uh, 
throw up my arms. And, uh, you know, I even got uh, a hassle with my home group here a while back. And they did something that I knew was wrong. And I, you know, I let them know, of course, every time I got the opportunity. <laughs> and uh, God, uh, I got a little sore. I thought, what the hell is it, my God? Uh, you know, I've outgrown them. <laughs> so, uh, uh, really, uh, I finally went back and I apologized to them. And, uh, and you know, he called him. And, uh, and I told them that they had a right to be wrong. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> You know, and I got that from my little bride. She told me one time that, you know, we were talking about paint, we were painting my new office that I opened. And she said, well, I'm getting me some more paint. And I said, what color? And she says, uh, Spanish white. And I said, no, it isn't Spanish white. She showed her the label. And she was, she was, you know, shook up. She'd been out a little while and she said, well, I got a right to be wrong. And I didn't realize that, that she had a right to be wrong. I didn't think, I thought I was the only one that had the right to be wrong. We, um, we have, uh, traveled a, a long road, uh, but it's been so short, you know. A while back, I went down to a, a meeting in Orange County, and they used to call these meetings the old timers meetings. And now they've changed that somewhat, and they call them the long timers meetings. And I, I said I was, I was awful glad they had, because it's old-timer business. You know, you don't really get to an old-timer in AA. But the hell, all those seats are always filled in the back row. And uh, I don't want to be back there. I want to be up here. I want to be down there someplace. I want to be up where the action is, you know. And I told him I was glad they changed it to a long-timer meeting. Actually, I said I feel better now than I did when I was 32 or 3 years old, you know. And I can do damn near everything. I can do everything I could do then. Maybe not quite as often, but, you know, I could... <laughs> And, uh, uh, but that's true. I, I, AA is, is, uh, you know, I read a little clip in the, uh, grapevine today. It said, uh, old age is, uh, mandatory and growing up is optional. And I like that. That's very good. You know, what, I'm just about out of what I was going to say. I probably covered my story about as well as I need to. Uh, I, I did want to cover one thing. You know, I go to church occasionally. And uh, I had a help time. I had a lot of people used to invite me to become a member of their church. And I'd go to the church, you know, and uh, I wouldn't fit in for some reason. And I used to think, well, hell, well, I've got a spiritual program. How come I don't fit into a regular church like I should? And uh, I couldn't understand it. And I'd be bouncing around from church to church. And my wife, she you know, I should go. And she's in church this morning, I understand. My son was going to pick her up and take her to church and have a Mother's Day deal. And, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, I, I kept bouncing around from church to church, and finally, uh, I found a church that I could get along with, and it was a church where they just told the minister that I was in AA, and that I would not be there on some Sunday, so that I'd have something to do on a Sunday, and that uh, if there was anybody in the church that uh, needed some help on along with the drinking problem or something, and he wanted to, he could let them know, and I'd be glad to talk to him, and he has. He died quite often, and I don't interfere with his business. I haven't told him how to run his church yet, now, <laughs> which was new for me. I used to go to other churches and explain the spiritual program to him. But, <laughs> but now uh, I could just go and just be a member and just kind of enjoy it. And I still like the singing, and I like the company of uh, the people. And uh, my son is, is a deacon in the church. 
One thing about him, though, I've got to break that boy of this habit. You know, he'll introduce me to a new guy. He'll say, I'm, I'm uh, Jimmy, and uh, this is my dad, uh, and uh, he's a member of AA. And uh, it always kind of catches me by surprise, you know, and I explain the anonymity to him every time, and he says, okay, Dad. And the next time he meets a guy and he introduces him to me, he says, this is my dad. He's a member of AA. And uh, I heard him one time get up in front of the congregation and tell uh, why he did that. And he said, he told a little of my story. And he said, you know, my biggest uh, desire when I was a young kid was to uh, uh, get away from home. Get away from that terrible, miserable, unhappy home. And he says, and then my dad got on AA. And he said, uh, I never quite understood it until he began to take me to meetings. I took him to a lot of meetings with him. And he couldn't take him to the little meeting up there because they wouldn't let him in. They didn't want the kids to know whose father was and whose father wasn't the mother on AA. Yeah, but he loved those, those meetings. And he still goes. He brings his whole family. Sometimes he'll bring up, I've got, uh, he's got five kids, and he and his wife and the five kids, uh, will come up and, uh, give me my birthday cake over my whole meeting, you know. And, uh, I love that. I think it's great. But, uh, I, I go to his church and I sit and I listen, you know, and I learn something. And, uh, he comes to AA. He comes to AA when he gets all squirreled up. You know, being a deacon in that particular brand of, uh, uh, religion, they uh, do a lot of the uh, work for the, uh, for the ministers, they counsel and all that kind of stuff. And that's pretty heavy, you know. It's pretty heavy when you're trying to counsel people. Uh, but I get all his, all his drunk. He, he immediately designates me a number one drunk taker carer. Yeah, and that's okay. And uh, I haven't done, had too much success with him, but I always tell him, well, they just haven't hit bottom yet. Don't keep drinking and they'll get here, you know. Well, anyway, I'm glad to have been here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I had an opportunity to uh, to uh, be in this beautiful country. God, it's beautiful up here. And I'll be going through here occasionally because my daughter's moving from Seattle back to Boise. And uh, when I'm going through here, I'm going to stop and, uh, and and get some of these good St. George-type meetings. I want to thank you very much for being here. God bless you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.